You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. Well, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. I trust that you guys had a good Easter uh, last Sunday, celebrating our risen Lord and Savior. Um, if you were able to be here, um, it was a special service, um, a special time of singing and, and hearing from uh, hearing about the resurrection, how it changes everything, and i um, glad that uh, you guys are each here today as well. So this morning, we're going to get back on track with Jonah. Uh, if you want to go ahead and flip there into your Bibles, uh, you will notice my voice might sound a little off. Um, I am still recovering from some stuff earlier in the week. My wife has it today, thus my crew is not out here with you. So um, anyways, thankfully I still have a voice as of right now, but by the time I get to the end of it, if I don't say anything to you and you come up to me, you will know that it ran out, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right, well, this morning in our text, we're going to be looking at the very end of chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the whole book, or the whole chapter of 3, and we're going to see that Jonah finally gets on track with what God originally wanted him to do in chapter 1, verse 1, and that was for him to deliver the merciful good news of repentance to an unbelieving nation. A nation that was known as one of the most violent, corrupt, vile, pagan nations of all times, the Assyrians, during this point in world history. Uh, This was a task that was not an easy task. Jonah, if you'll remember, was one of the first prophets that God called to go to another nation to preach to them, proclaim to them, for them to repent. Uh, And it was no doubt a task that filled Jonah full of turmoil, inner conflict, uh, the emotions raging, knowing he most likely had friends and loved ones that were killed or tortured or imprisoned by this nation at one point in time. Uh, Neighboring countries that this Assyrian nation had attacked and oppressed. and, And it wasn't that they would just attack and oppress them. They were literally one of the most violent nations that the world has ever known. Okay, they think about concentration camps and then maybe multiply that. Okay, it was some of the, it was just like they captured the people and they, whatever we want to try and figure out and feel like doing, and it had to do with all sorts of torture, some of the, the stone reliefs that have been found um, are very graphic. In fact, I did hesitated, even though it's just like stone images, I hesitated even putting them on a screen um, because of what it shows them doing uh, to people who are caught. And so uh, it was a terrible nation, a terroristic nation, and God called Jonah to go there. And yet, even though Jonah disobeyed God, flat out just got up, remember, went the other way, went the wrong way, God, in his turbulent mercy, hurled a great storm onto the sea, the sea that Jonah was traveling on in the wrong direction. God used unbelieving sailors whose actions resembled believers far more than Jonah's did 
and which we saw that led to their salvation. God also used the opportunity of the sailors throwing Jonah overboard so that he could still continue to get Jonah's attention. And then at the right time, as Jonah was drowning, appointed a fish to come and swallow him to save his life. Thus leading the prodigal prophet to finally repent in that belly of that fish through his prayer that we read about in chapter 2 last time we talked about Jonah. Of Jonah coming to that place in verse 10, I believe it was, 9 or 10, where he said, I will do what I was called to do. I will, if you remember, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will complete my vows. So Jonah is finally seeming to get back on track here. So let's stand, if you would, if you're willing and able. We'll read our passage today together. We're starting in verse 10 of chapter 2, the very last verse of that chapter. And then we'll flip to the next chapter and continue through that one. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. God relented from the disaster. And he did not do it. You may be seated. Excuse me. So, let's jump right in. Maybe my voice will make it. Let's jump right in and explore this good news of repentance. God not only saved Jonah from drowning, what he deserved because of his disobedience. He then provides a mode of transportation to get him where he needed to be, right? By well. (coughs) Now, the exit strategy from the well wasn't the most glorious. He was vomited up on the beach. And so, I'm sure that God could have provided another way for him to get out of the well without it being so nasty. But he did not. Maybe it was a final, <clears throat> maybe it was a final way of saying, "Hey, you know what you did was really bad. Uh, you're going to get to 
exit this well and vomit and spew representative of your sin. But, <coughs> excuse me, what we can be sure of, does anybody have a cough drop by chance? Of course you would, Miss Vicky. Ooh, a fancy one. Thank you. Hmm. All right, maybe this puppy will kick in. <coughs> Give it a second. <laughs> one way that we can be sure that God restored Jonah. It is because God's second call to ask him to deliver the word. And we see that in verse 1 of chapter 3. I love how when we take the time and meditate on the scripture, there's far more there for us than if we just read over this. We see God saving Jonah, and then we see him restoring him back to where he was before his sin. I still want you to serve me. I still need you to deliver this message for me. We see when we sin and we come to that place of conviction that we saw Jonah come to, that took a lot, no doubt, for him. Sometimes it takes a lot for us. And then to finally repent of that sin, like he did, and if we do, and then choosing to follow the Lord yet once again, God is gracious to restore us. Now, it doesn't mean that he will always restore us to where we were. Sin has consequence, as Jonah has experienced all along the way. It has some severe consequence. And even though Jonah deserved death, even though our sin causes us to deserve eternal death, God is gracious to restore us. And we see examples of this throughout Scripture in Moses and Samson and David. And then even sometimes God might take our past sin, restore us, <clears throat> and then establish us for even greater things like Peter in the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. All my feelings were gone this week, so we're just going to get to suffer through this deal. Um, verse 2, get up. We've seen this before, haven't we? In chapter 1, God told Jonah to get up, go to Nineveh, repent. The captain, the sailor, the unbelieving sailors in the ship, when Jonah was asleep at the belly of it, came down and during the storm and shook Jonah awake. Get up, pray to your God. This is the third time in the book that we're seeing the same command, get up. Also, the second time that God is saying, hey, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach the message I have, you, I have for you to deliver to them. Some people say that chapters 1 and chapter 3 parallel to each other and are similar. And so you can kind of see how they track along a little bit. Similarly, kind of like our lives in history throughout the world, right? Seems like it's a big cycle. If you look at Israel throughout the Old Testament, there's this cycle. It's 
some might call it the sin cycle. There's the, there's the sin, there's the consequence of the sin, there's coming to the place of confession, repentance, God restoring, getting to that place where everybody thinks you're good again and you start thinking you don't need God. When we get to that place, we don't think we're good. We don't need Him as much on those good days as we do on the bad days and we sin again. And this is kind of the cycle in our lives throughout the history of time as well. Yet this time in verse 3, Jonah did get up. He got up, went to Nineveh according to God's command. It's like, finally, finally, dude, you got it. (laughs) You're doing it. Now, if you stop and think about it, I imagine that he still had some walking to do even after he got delivered by fish to the beach. If you look at this map, if you remember it from earlier on in the series that Jonah started off (coughs) like 300 miles northeast of Joppa, went down to Joppa, took a ship to Tarshish. Somewhere between Joppa and Tarshish, the storm, Jonah's plans were derailed by God's grace and mercy. Hopped in a fish, right? Fish brings him back, but... Unless there was some like narrow inlet of a river that I've missed as I've studied some maps and stuff besides just this one, he still had to walk from that coastline to Nineveh. And I imagine that Jonah's doing some pondering during this. Can you imagine some of the emotions he might have been feeling? Just because that he was now on track and obeying God doesn't mean that he still didn't have some fear, trepidation, some emotions, some wrestling inside him about why am I having to go to this people group? Why am I having to go to this nation? And put yourself in his shoes. Nineveh itself was what Scripture says is a great city. A city that could take three days for him to walk and proclaim the news. There are estimates on its exact size. Scripture will later tell us in the book that there was around 120,000 inhabitants. So, you know, that's double the size of Joplin plus and then walking across it from one side to the other, that could take a while. The cities were more condensed than ours are today, obviously, due to roads and things like that. And then when you jump down to verse 4, there's a couple of things that I find very interesting there. First off, it says, what, first off, what it, <coughs> on the first day, he made his proclamation, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Not all three days. Scripture is very specific about that in saying that. So to me, it sounds like he only did 30%, 33% of the job that he was given. Now, I don't know where you work, but if for the folks that I manage some rental properties on the side for, if I only did 33% of my job for them, or when I was in remodeling and construction, only built somebody 33% of their house... That wouldn't turn out so well, would it? (laughs) They'd have some issues with that, and they should have some issues with that. Jonah is only doing about 33% of the job here that God has called him to do, but yet word had spread like fire, and God still used it. God used his lackluster effort in proclaiming this news and still spreading it. Second of all, I find the message itself interesting. And as we can 
look at from verse 5, Jonah must have said something more than Scripture says because it says that the people of Nineveh believe God. Jonah, in that message of 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. He doesn't talk about God. He doesn't talk about repentance or anything like this. So what we can look at by seeing how the people believed in God is that Jonah must have said something else that Scripture doesn't specifically record. And that's okay. We don't have to know word for word, right? This, we couldn't carry this around if it was word for word of everything that was said and done. So we know that something else must have been said and done more than just in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. But the, the other issue that I see in Jonah's proclamation here is he says Nineveh will be demolished. Like, that's his heart motive. That's his desire and that's his wish for these people. And again, understandably so, as we've already talked about. But is that really what God wanted him to say? We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. So we can look at this and we can speculate and we can understand. And what we will see in the next chapter when we look at that together, we can see kind of, we kind of get to peek into Jonah's heart and his attitude about doing this. And so you're welcome to read aloud ahead in your own time, but I think that Jonah's attitude and his perspective in this, based off what I see, how he responds to God's mercy in chapter 4, that Jonah's wanting them to be destroyed. It's like, I'll deliver your message, God, and then I just can't wait to sit back and watch it happen. You see, I think Jonah was, in this hard attitude he had, <clears throat> he was experiencing some memory loss here. A memory loss that we also experience often. And let me explain that. The mercy of God that was just granted to him through all of the things that God did to save him and restore him. Unconventional, not in ways that we might think or want, but God had every right to destroy Jonah on the spot when he said no and got up to go the other way. He could have been a, just a black smear. <laughs> he could have disappeared from existence. God created matter. He can also remove matter from existence. He could have been gone. And yet he did not. And his mercy brought him back. And here Jonah is, having just gone through everything that he had gone through. Forgetting about the own mercy, the same mercy that God showed him. That he did not deserve. And unwilling to think that God might show mercy or should show mercy to this people. And the way that we are similar is this, is that we often judge others. We will often not forgive others because we go about life forgetting about the great mercy and grace and love shown us. And to think, and to think that we are somehow more special than another human being and that they don't deserve that same mercy that same grace, that same love that God gave to 
every one of his people, everyone he created. You know, one sin, one sin knocks anyone out of the running to be in relationship with God. Just one. So it doesn't matter if, hey, I, I've, I over-exaggerated on the story I told versus somebody over here who has killed somebody. This sin absolutely has far more reaching consequences. It affects far more than this sin. But both knock you out of the running of being in a relationship with God. It is only Jesus Christ and His blood and the cross that allows anybody to stand before Him clean. Because when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sins and our mistakes. He sees Christ's blood. He sees Christ's payment on the cross. Therefore, we can stand before Almighty God and can be in relationship with the loving Father. And as we looked at last week, can be a brother or sister of Jesus. Can be a son or daughter of God Almighty. So is there someone that we need to forgive that we're not? Is there someone that we should be begin praying for? That we've avoided praying for? Because... You know, we've just held on to that. Like, oh, they're just worse than me. Is there somebody that we need to share the good news of the gospel with? Lord Jesus, please save us from ourselves. And verse 5 says that the people believed God, all of them. All of them. Now prior to Jonah's arrival, history would tell us that the Assyrians and Ninevites had experienced some plagues. They had gone through an eclipse and different things. All of these things God could have been using to soften them up for this moment in time. See, we never know what's gone on before us. When we share the gospel with somebody and say they choose to accept Christ, what a, what a great blessing that is. There's, there's nothing more on this earth that we could experience in serving God than the blessing of getting to, to witness that right in front of you. And yet, who knows what God has been doing in their life before you came along. So when you share the gospel and it seems like they could care less and they move on, who knows what God will use with that seed that is planted and when that day may finally, hopefully, by His grace come. See, we're not responsible for their salvation. Jonah wasn't responsible for the people repenting. In fact, like we've already said, he hoped they wouldn't. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to deliver the news and the message, just like Jonah's. In fact, the people of Nineveh made outward signs in declaration of their repentance, signifying to others that they were mourning for their sin, these outward symbols of mourning and repentance included a diet modification and a new fashion statement. 
When word reached the king, he did the same, and then even won up everybody by sitting in ashes and issuing a decree. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. You see, by his decree here, it doesn't seem that the message that Jonah conveyed, whether that was the exact message that God wanted him to say or not, had anything to do with whether or not God would turn from his wrath should they repent and change. In fact, to me, it indicates even more so that that was not a part of what was said. Who knows? It's kind of like, hey, it's our last shot. Let's give it a try. God might turn and relent. Even the animals were forced to participate. God saw their actions and that they had turned from their wicked ways, so he did not destroy them. Now, Scripture does not tell us for how long that they dieted and made this new fashion statement. We know that there was a 40-day ticker on it, right? God said 40 days before, or Jonah said 40 days, assuming that God told him that that's exactly what he said. I'm going to go with that. So we don't know how many days it was this went on before God decided not to. Was it all 40 days? A whole nation? 40 days? Well, they couldn't have lived without water that long, right? So we know we can back it up to within a few days. Now, I had never experienced, still living here in McDonald County, what it was like to live by a field of cows when they haven't been fed when they were supposed to be. You know, we've had cats and dogs, and they do their own thing, but you can kind of put that in the back of your mind. So the service that we had to cancel because of the ice, well, the night before, when it iced, our neighbor, uh, the cows were without food. You know, suddenly all the ground was covered, and the person who was supposed to show up to feed them wasn't supposed to be there to the next morning. And so it was all night long. And these cows, I'm telling you, have no patience. Now, y'all who work with them, please feel free to correct me as I go here, but they were ticked. And they were going to let everybody in the valley know about it. And they did. It was all night. And there was no consistency so that you could just actually start sleeping. No, we didn't cancel service because I didn't sleep that night. It was truly icy roads. But... It was obnoxious. I mean, it, I mean, I can fall asleep eventually if somebody is snoring really loud. My wife does not snore. You know, when I've been on a trip or whatever with other guys. But it was incredible. And I can't imagine going two or three days and the bellowing and the howling and the scratching at the doorpost and the the animals that must have been freaking out. I mean, were they starting to eat each other by that point? I mean, they're like, you're not going to feed me. I'm going to eat this guy next to me, you know? Cows became carnivores. 
my mind just jumped to what Chick-fil-A would do with that. I don't know. I'm not going to, I shouldn't go there. Stop me, Khalif. <laughs> but the point is, is they did this as a nation. As a nation. Outward signs of mourning and repentance for their sin. Now, putting on sackcloth is not like us going out in our jammies. Okay, that's not like us just not getting ready for the day and going out and people being like, really? You couldn't even put on jeans or something? No, putting on sackcloth was itchy, uncomfortable, scratchy clothing. So as you sat in them, as you moved in them, it created further discomfort. So it was a reminder to the wearer of them that they were in mourning for a big reason. And then anybody observing this person wearing them would also be aware of this person mourning something, something of significance. Did you see in verse 8 that they put sackcloth on the animals too? I mean, not only were they starving them, they put sackcloth on the animals too. Now, I'd be curious to see the news afterward and seeing how these animals just ate their masters afterward for doing all this to them. It's like, okay, your food now. But in all seriousness, though, I think we should appreciate their efforts in mourning for the state of their sin and coming to a place of having an understanding of it. And I know a few weeks ago we looked at this and giving sin the credit that it's due. I just feel strongly that if you're anything like me, bringing this up again is important. Sin required the Son of God to die. Let that sink in. Whether you've murdered somebody or whether you've over-exaggerated on your story so you looked more impressive or people laugh. Sin required the Son of God to die so that we could be back into relationship with our Creator. Now, I'm not saying that we go into the pits of despair and have to get on Prozac and all of that stuff. But I am saying that we need to have a healthy sense of grief and mourning and lament. I mean, when somebody's having a bad day, you can kind of see it on their face. Have you ever asked somebody, hey, are you okay? What's going on? And they've said, you know what? I sinned. I blew it. And I am grieving over it. Has anybody answered that to you? Not me. And I've never answered that way. If somebody ever did, I think I would just be amazed at their honesty and be inspired. Have you 
And when we do this, I believe that the mercy and grace and love of God is that much more glorious. Is that much more overwhelming to the point that when we get up each morning to know that God has saved us through His Son and defeated death on the cross like we celebrated last week through Him rising again, that that in and of itself should fuel our joy for the day. No matter what else happens to us throughout that day. That alone should fuel our joy and our happiness. One last thing to point out before we start wrapping this up here. Scripture does not say that the Ninevites were saved from more than just their immediate impending doom. Unlike the sailors in chapter 1, Scripture never indicates here for us that they came to a place of fearing the Lord, of worshiping Him. They did not make any vows of turning and following that the sailors made. They did not offer any sacrifices. Another indicator for us, if you dig a little deeper, is is that the word that they use for God here in this section is an impersonal generic form. God, yes, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God, but it was an impersonal form versus the intimate form of God that is expressed in the Old Testament, Yahweh. After repenting, the Ninevites, like we do, had the choice to believe, to fear Him, to choose Him, to make vows to follow Him. Or tragically, not and return back to their ways. So, in wrapping up, I believe that there are three truths that we can pull out of what we have covered so far. First off, sin will incur God's wrath. Sin will incur God's wrath, period. God is holy and righteous and just. And praise God, there is a consequence for sin. It would be intolerable for us to even live if this was not true. In a world of relativism and believing what you want, and you do you, and all of these things that are said out there, if there is no absolute guiding truth of this, that is not true. It's anarchy. It's chaos. Another country can torture and demean women. And that should be okay. A country should be able to kill babies of any age. And that should be okay. One race should be able to be discriminating and hateful towards another race. None of those things are okay. Every person is made in God's image. Man and woman. 
all are valuable and all are precious to him. Therefore, when that is broken, when that is subjugated against, there should be a consequence, there should be wrath. And if there was not also his wrath, there would not also be such a great, amazing, overwhelming outpouring of his mercy and love and grace. Second of all, God's mercy is available for everyone. Everyone. We see it here for Jonah, the wayward prodigal prophet, and we see it for the Ninevites, a most horrible pagan violent, vile, corrupt nation. One of the worst the world's ever known. God's mercy is available for everyone. And that mercy, as we now know today, because of what we celebrated last week, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the good news of repentance. God's mercy knows no boundaries of skin color, culture, background, age, belief, man, woman, or even those who might be sadly confused about any of that. He is merciful to all. Not one is more precious to him than another. This is why in our series here on Jonah, we see God sending Jonah to Nineveh. This is why he has given everyone who choose to believe in him and follow him the command, the opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission in sharing him with others. And as my wife and I were talking yesterday, we can, also, all fell, all, we can get caught up in thinking that you know, well, I didn't just specifically rock down the Roman road with somebody this last week, so I failed in this. And I didn't just, you know, the Walmart cashier two days ago, I didn't just say, hey, you know, do you know Jesus? You know, it doesn't always have to look like that. The beauty of God's word is there are no formulas in this, and there are no formulas in sharing your faith. Some days it can be Literally, you just living out your life in pursuit of him and people observing. And in other days, it's an opportunity to smile at somebody. And that's the beginning. Other days, it's how you make business decisions. With good morals and ethics. And there are those times that, yes... It's right there, and we should absolutely proclaim the good news of the gospel. The point is, is that we are intentional about it, that we are praying for those opportunities, that God would open the door, and that our tongue would not stay silent, that we could literally not keep our mouths closed when those opportunities present themselves. And God will make a way. Whether you work in a school system that says you shouldn't and couldn't, Did you know Christianity is spreading faster in the nations where it's illegal than it is here? Don't tell me that he can't make a way in the hardest and most extreme circumstances. Sending a prophet 
down Main Street to declare the good news of a nation that would just as soon kill him like they'd wipe something off their shoe than anything else. God's mercy is available for everyone. And Jesus Christ has made it so. The third thing is true repentance is a heart condition. True repentance is a heart condition. And we see the actions of the Ninevites in this and, and it coming out and display outwardly. But we don't see the evidence of the heart turning and changing like we did with the sailors. It's Psalms 51, 16, and 17 where David is lamenting over his sin. In mourning, he too, sitting in sackcloth and ashes as king of Israel. And he is saying here, you do not want to sacrifice God or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. The guys have a song that they're going to play here. And, and then I'll come back and dismiss this in prayer when it's over. I would strongly encourage you to just, Lord, is there something in my heart, in my life, that I need to repent from and turn back to you for and commit to you more fully? Ask him to reveal that to you. He will. He is faithful and good. And like he did with Jonah, he is ready, willing, and able to forgive you and to restore you to where he desires you to be and wants you to be. But may this time of the song be that for you. Uh, maybe the words are a cry out to God in that way. And a praise to him, sing along. But just take these minutes to respond to what his word has showed us today.